Warriors, warriors. Does anyone know what's happening this week? The start of the NBA playoffs. <laughs> and I know, I know. It hurts. It's too soon. Seattle Supersonics, may they rest in peace. You have no one to root for. But let me tell you, if you miss the rain man, Sean Kemp, and Gary Payton the glove, we got the young glove, Gary Payton the second. If you enjoyed Ray Allen splashing threes, we got Stephen Curry, the greatest shooter of all time. We got my favorite, Andre Iguodala. And I know, I know, you're like, do you know what it's like to suffer? I know you guys lost Kevin Durant in his prime, but so did we. So if you need some team to root for, <laughs> Warriors. <laughs> Woo! Playoffs! <laughs> and I don't know what came over me. That's wildly inappropriate. <laughs> Such displays of passion and emotion in church. There is a reason why I'm acting like a crazy person, and you'll see shortly. But good morning, and welcome to church on this beautiful Palm Sunday. I'm Ryan White. I'm the lead pastor here at Elam, and it is a joy to be worshiping with you. It's a joy to be opening up God's Word with you on this Palm Sunday. And Palm Sunday is one of those Christian holidays that I am not sure... I celebrate in the right way. For example, I, I think I understand how to celebrate St. Patrick's Day. Right? You wear a little green. You pinch your children. You have a delicious meal of corned beef and cabbage. And you say a little prayer for missionaries like St. Francis of old, who bring the good news of Jesus to unreached people groups. So I kind of have, in my own way, St. Patty's Day down. But what about Palm Sunday? Well, here's what I know. I know Palm Sunday is the first holiday of the Easter season. I know it kicks off Holy Week, a week that will culminate in our commemoration of Jesus' crucifixion on Good Friday, come out, 6.30, and his resurrection on Easter morning. I know Palm Sunday looks back and remembers Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem when he was hailed as Israel's long-awaited king. And I know how Christians around the world celebrate this day. Many of our Christian brothers and sisters around the globe and in, in various Christian denominations will march today in happy procession, waving palm branches, singing praises to Jesus as the world's true king. Some of them will take these strips of palm and they'll, they'll weave them into crosses to remember and to acknowledge where the lengths our victorious 
king would go to to secure our salvation. What I don't really know about Palm Sunday is what I don't know well, at least, are the emotional beats of this holiday. You see, it's a raucous celebration. It's, it's got hype. It's got excitement. It's got all sorts of feels, right? There's cheers and there's tears. There's moving and grooving. There's singing and dancing. There's shouts of joy. There are these acclamations and shouts for, of relief and, and deep longing. You have grown men and women acting like crazy people in the euphoria of their hope. There's this buzzing sense that something significant and meaningful and life-changing is happening right now in our midst. But when was the last time you saw those sorts of emotions in church? We're not a super animated bunch. It takes pretty much all we can muster to clap, but we did a real good job last week. I noticed you guys were on beat, you're grooving a little bit, you know. And you can blame it that we were founded by half-frozen Scandinavian missionaries. You could blame it on the cold and the wet and the gray. But I know you people. I've seen these emotional beats. I've seen this craziness, and it comes in the context of sports. And it looks like this. <laughs> and it looks like this. Next one. And it looks like this. And it looks like this. Right? You remember when the Seahawks won the 2014 Super Bowl, grown men and women acted like crazy people in the euphoria of their hope. You go to games and there was this buzzing sense that something significant and memorable and life-changing was happening in your midst. Folks put up their 12 flags and they started to evangelize the, the beast mode and, and the legion of boom and Pete Carroll and, and the man himself, I know too soon, Russell Wilson would leave, would lead the Hawks and the, the whole region to the promised land. Could we ever muster that sort of fervor for Jesus? Is it possible for us to learn the, the emotional beats and rhythms of this Palm Sunday holiday? And I think we need some help. I think we're going to actually need our children to lead us. So more on that later. But it will certainly require some practice, right? I don't want anyone to pull a muscle celebrating too hard too soon, right? We Baby steps, we need to kind of figure out what does this look like, but it is my prayer that we can learn to mark this holiday in our own way. And most of all, I do want us to remember, 
I think it's vital for us to transport ourselves back to that jubilant scene in Jerusalem that Brian had us kind of picture initially to find our places in that joyous crowd that was hailing Jesus as God's anointed, as God's chosen deliverer to save his people. And our palm branches and our songs and our processions are are really meant to spur our imagination. They're to get us back to that moment because there on that first Palm Sunday, if we join with that crowd of just cheering, exuberant disciples, I think we're able to hear God's invitation. And I'd argue that the best way to celebrate this holiday is for us to respond to God's Palm Sunday invitation. But before we get there, we're going to look at the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to let Mark set the scene for us. So this is Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Shouting about the Warriors got my throat dry. And I am serious. They're a great team. Jump on the bandwagon now. But Mark chapter 11, verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, two kind of villages on the outskirts of town, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you. And immediately, as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. And we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and they found a colt tied to a door outside in the street. And they untied it. And some of those standing there said, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. So why is Jesus going up to Jerusalem? Well, he's going up to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover with his disciples. And Passover is that pilgrimage feast where every able-bodied Jewish man was expected to celebrate the holiday They're in Jerusalem. And at Passover, hundreds of thousands of Jews would flood in from all over to this capital city, to the city of God, to to David's city. And the ancient writers report that at times of Passover, the city would swell to over two million people. It was a time of singing and great excitement as the people of God celebrated their historic exodus, their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. That moment where God, in his might, rescued them. And at Passover, the air is just kind of ripe with expectation because theirs is a God who saves He saved them in the past, and he would save them again. And as the rejoicing pilgrims started to pour into Jerusalem, they allowed themselves to hope again. 
And knowing it's Passover kind of helps us understand why Jesus would instruct his disciples to untie another man's donkey. Because locals kind of living in the city, they're used to all of these visitors, all of these out-of-towners coming in for the holiday. So in this time, they're very particularly extremely hospitable with their stuff to accommodate their fellow Jewish brothers and sisters who are here to, to celebrate. So while God's clearly orchestrating events, it's not that unusual to ask a stranger if you could borrow their property. What is unusual is that Jesus instructs his disciples to untie a colt, a young donkey that's never been broken and upon which no man has ever sat. And at this point, the uh, Gospel of Matthew pipes in and gives us a little bit of commentary. This is what we read in Matthew 21, verses 4 through 5. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Matthew's quoting a passage from the prophet Zechariah, in which Zechariah foretells of this triumphant king who will enter Jerusalem having vanquished all of Israel's enemies. Yet this victorious king is not what Israel might expect. He doesn't enter the capital riding on a gleaming white war horse. Instead, he enters God's city in great humility, riding a donkey, which is an animal not of war, but of peace. And Zechariah will go on to say in 9, starting in verse 10, I will cut off the chariot, this is God talking, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, O people of Israel, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. Victory, the end of war and strife, a king ruling in Israel, a double restoration. This is the infectious hope of Passover. And by choosing to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, Jesus is claiming this mantle for himself. He's saying, I am God's chosen king who will usher in victory and restoration and peace. And the crowd responds back in Mark 11. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks upon it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting... 
Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. As Jesus joins that crowd of singing pilgrims, as he's riding his donkey into the city, something truly unusual happens. The crowds seem to get it. They grasp the significance of this moment and they respond. And we see in Luke, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. They give Jesus a royal welcome. And I'm not just saying that. I literally mean that. This is the sort of welcome one only gives a king who's coming into his throne or or a conquering hero. You don't just throw your shirt on the ground for anybody. You do it for a king who's coming to claim his throne for the very first time. And the waving of these branches gives the whole scene this sense of a triumphal procession. Uh, Palm branches were the symbol of victory. And in Roman times, when a general had conquered the enemies of Rome, they would throw him this big parade called a triumph. And he would march into the city and the streets would be just lined with people who were just waving these palm branches, these symbols of victory. And it's at this point in this scene that the religious leaders of Israel, those who've been pushing back against Jesus and opposing him, they start to just completely freak out. And we hear in John, they exclaim, look, the world has gone after him. And in Luke, we hear them chide Jesus there on his donkey, and they say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he looks back at them and he says, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The crowds are shouting, Hosanna. It's an Aramaic expression that means, Lord, save us. And their acclamations are actually coming directly from the set of the psalms that pilgrims would sing as they were coming into the city during Passover. They're acknowledging that God is again doing a work of salvation. His kingdom is drawing near. Indeed, it has arrived in and through this man, Jesus. And the whole scene is this spontaneous expression of amazement at God's saving work. And I think it's worthwhile to to look at one of those Passover psalms a little bit closer. It's Psalm 118. It's what Lars read to open up our service. And as we get to the end of it, I can almost imagine Jesus singing these words from the back of the donkey. Verse 19, Open to me the gates of righteousness, 
that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, and the righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you've answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. With bows in hand, join the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will extol you. I will give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Jesus is the gate through which we enter. Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected, that God has made the cornerstone. It's it's marvelous in our eyes. And we can't help but with, with bows in hand join the festal procession. Crying out that God saves and His steadfast love endures forever. Really, this whole scene just gives me chills because it's this glimpse of of the worship of heaven. And at first glance, the triumphal entry seems like this moment of clarity and really just a sea of confusion. It seems like for once... Everyone got it. They, they recognize Jesus for who he truly is. He's God's Messiah. He's the world's one true king. But it's actually a bittersweet moment because we know these same crowds will be shouting, crucify him on Friday. And instead of responding with a beaming smile, we see tears in Jesus' eyes. This is how the scene ends in Luke's gospel. And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you, Jerusalem, when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Oh, that you would know the things that make for peace. Jesus is the world's one true king. But he's not the sort of king 
we were expecting. He's not a king drenched in the blood of his enemies, riding a mighty stallion. No, he's the king who rides the donkey who's willingly heading to his humiliating death on a cross. He's not the sort of king we were expecting. But that makes sense, because after all, we don't know the things that make for peace. God does. And he says, this is my anointed. This is my chosen redeemer. Let us learn from Jesus the things that make for peace. Let us receive from his nail-scarred hands that double restoration that Zechariah promised. A restoration both of our relationship with God and a restoration of our broken and sinful world. It says in James 4, 7 through 8, Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. I love these verses. I, I find them to be a more punchy version of what we were trying to kind of understand and memorize and learn through the book of Titus. And maybe I should have picked a shorter verse like this one to have you guys try to memorize. But if anyone did do the, uh, the big Titus verse, I still have chocolate. Miss Beth uh, came and recited hers and got a chocolate bar this morning. So way to go, Beth. Gold star. But I share with you this verse from James this morning because I feel they perfectly echo God's invitation to us on Palm Sunday. Because the first aspect of God's invitation is to submit to Jesus as our king. Now, the, the word king, for all practical purposes, is a foreign word to us. It's completely divorced from our actual experience. The era of kings and queens has, has passed. Any monarch that kind of still remains is basically a, a figurehead that lacks any real power. And this whole kind of notion of kingship has been so diminished for us that I, I wonder if we can truly hear something like, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, as Jesus intended for those words to be heard. You see, in simple terms, a, a kingdom is the range in one, within which one's will is effective. It's that little sphere where things happen just because you want them to. That's your kingdom. And on Palm Sunday, the, the crowds are hailing Jesus as Israel's one true king. They're inviting him to exercise his effective will in their nation, in their land, in their lives. And an early kind of mantra of the church was that Jesus is king and Caesar is not. 
Jesus, through his death and his resurrection and his ascension, was revealed as the world's one true king. And and that revelation invites us to submit. And we've already kind of looked at in Titus what, what it means to submit to Christ's leadership and love. One of the things was to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And I really think if we're going to join the cheering crowds that are hailing Jesus as king, we have to be willing to do what he tells us to do. We have to allow him to exercise his effective will in our life. Otherwise, our words are empty of any real meaning. And it's no accident that as you continue this story in the Gospel of Mark, the first thing we see Jesus do after his triumphal entry is to march into the temple and start overturning tables. He starts uprooting what is false. He starts supplanting what stands in opposition to him. He starts overturning all that obscures his glory in our lives and in our spiritual community. So on this Palm Sunday, we must ask, are we willing to submit to Jesus as our king? Now, the second aspect of this Palm Sunday invitation is resistance, right? To accept and submit to Jesus as the one true king, we have to resist giving our allegiance to any false kings or false promises of salvation. The triumphal entry is bittersweet because they are accepting Jesus the man, but they've not yet come to accept the sort of king that that man will be. They want him to be the military leader. They're giving him free reign as long as he does what they expect him to do, what they want him to do, which is to defeat violently their enemies. It reminds me of the climactic moment in the Gospel of Mark when Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter pops up and he says, you are the Christ. You are God's anointed one. You are the chosen king. And Peter's commended for that insight. But right away, Jesus goes on to explain what does it mean to be the Christ? It means I will be rejected by the leaders. It means I will suffer. It means I will die on a cross. It means after three days, I will rise again. And Peter, who was just given that pat on the back and praised for his insight. He he takes Jesus aside and he says, Jesus, quit talking like this. This is not what it means to be the king. Get your head on straight. And Jesus looks and he says, one of the harshest things we ever see on the lips of Christ in all of scripture. He says, get behind me, Satan. 
For you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on things of man. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Peter, you do not know the things that make for peace. You don't know the difference between true kingship and false. So sit down, pipe down, and learn from me. And Peter's error is the same error the crowds were making on Palm Sunday. They were projecting their false images of a Savior onto Jesus. They missed the donkey, and they imagined the war horse. They were like, yeah, take on the Romans. But to honor Jesus as our king, we we must resist those false pictures of kingship, those false promises of salvation. We can't be so concerned with winning that we ignore the way that Jesus has called us to win. The victory will not come through force of arms. It will come through humiliation and defeat. It will come through a cross. Which leads to the final aspect of this Palm Sunday invitation. Witnessing Jesus' triumphal entry, we're called to draw near to King Jesus and follow him on that road that ultimately leads to the cross. Peter Jesus follows up on that rebuke of Peter with these words. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And as we prepare our hearts this year to celebrate Easter, may we not be Peter with our false notions of of kingship. Instead, might we be Simon of Cyrene, the one who steps out of the crowd, takes up the cross, and follows Jesus wherever he may. We know the promise. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Isn't that what Jesus is doing as he turns his face toward the cross? He's drawing near to us. He's taking our sin upon his shoulders and he's making a way for our peace and our restoration. He's making a way for us to not only share his death and escape the bondage of sin and death, but he's making us a way for us to share his victory. The victory of the empty tomb, of of a life that death can't even quench. So we end as we began, and I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. But what are you feeling? As we consider the joy and the the euphoria of that first Palm Sunday, how does it touch your experience? In what way would you like Jesus to triumphantly enter your life? What hopes are catching fire in your heart? I do firmly believe that Jesus is the answer you are looking for. And I am confident that he will come to you. But are you prepared for him to be a very different sort of answer than the one you're looking for? He's not here to be your coach 
He's not here to be your cheerleader or your guru. He is king and he loves you. He's here to rescue and save, to make the world new. Will you let him exercise his effective will in your life? Will you allow him to clean house and shape your future? Will you turn from any rival who promises a different sort of salvation? Will you go after him wherever he leads? God, throughout human history, has been big on holidays. We might not be, but he is. He says these rhythms are important. They train us. They remind us. They they get us in the motions to learn who we are and what God is up to in our world. And, And every time we come to Palm Sunday, it's this moment of clarity where we get to see Jesus as he truly is, the world's one true king. But it's also this moment of humility where we acknowledge that, oh my goodness, God, we have so misunderstood what sort of king you are. So we're going to sing, and we're going to have the worship team, but we're going to have some special helpers to lead us into worship Because I want to invite you this morning to let loose a little bit. Under your chair are strips of palm. And I want you to embrace the feels. Not because there's something magical, but but this is the holiday is something that Jesus gives us. He says, cheer, worship, follow this king. So don't pull a muscle, but try something new as we sing. And give these little palm strips a wave. May this be our song of response that we celebrate and acknowledge that Jesus, the Lord of the world, has come to rescue and save us. He's come to make the world new. He's come to make the ultimate sacrifice that we might have peace. So may our prayer today and our response be this song and this worship. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.